Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Coming up this hour... The fact that the county is reluctant even to consider an alternative technology is irresponsible, to say the least. What's next for Columbia Pike now that plans for a streetcar have been derailed? But first... Just about three quarters into the year, and we've already hit some major milestones here in the nation's capital. We've witnessed the official legalization of marijuana. We've felt and schwitzed our way through our warmest May on record. And on a different note, we've seen a 42% jump in the city's homicide rate. D.C. recorded 105 killings in 2014. Last weekend, the count for 2015 reached that same number. And it's only September. I know that people want answers. Why is this happening? Why now? Who's responsible? What's responsible? And here is the truth. There is no easy answer. That's Mayor Muriel Bowser speaking recently about her plan for a $15 million crime-fighting program. In other violence-thwarting efforts, police are offering newly increased rewards for seized illegal guns. The violent crime hasn't been limited to just one part of the city. But an area that's found itself in the spotlight several times this summer is the northwest D.C. neighborhood of Shaw. Most recently, near 7th and S., a bullet struck and killed an American University graduate. Four days prior, gunfire wounded three men near 7th and O. And over Memorial Day weekend, not far from that same intersection, a stray bullet killed a young mother at a barbecue. In a minute, we'll hear from a former cop who patrolled these streets during some of the district's most violent years. But first, Patrick Madden brings us this story from Shaw and across the Anacostia River, where 84 percent of this year's violence has taken place. Since the 1980s, Curtis Mosey has been chronicling the human toll of gun violence in Shaw, the neighborhood he grew up in. I grabbed my video camera and I went into the hood and I started documenting it's almost like, you know, Gerardo Rivera going over to a war zone and we're with a camera. You got another murder victim on camera. His documentaries are gritty and raw. It's funerals, shootings, quick vignettes of young neighborhood kids talking about growing up surrounded by violence. It shows a, a painful picture of what was going on around here. It's the truth. And you're going to see a lot of young men that on that tape that once were alive, it's no longer here. Few neighborhoods have as rich a history as Shaw. It's where Duke Ellington grew up and poet Langston Hughes drew inspiration, but the riots of 68 left Shaw decimated and it became a hotspot for drugs and gang violence. Now it's changing once again as development threatens the identity of this historic African-American neighborhood. Now you got condos going up, you got these expensive uh, apartments and houses going up. You know, Back in the 90s and in the um, 2000s, we didn't have that. So now what you have is a new neighbor that's coming in and folks have been forced out. What hasn't changed is the violence. That history is coming back. That painful history is coming back. And we ought to change that. Why is it coming back? That's the question that no one seems to be able to answer. What do you think it is? You want the truth? Want the honest truth? All right, I'm going to give you the honest truth. For that truth, Mosey turns to the Bible. There are no easy answers or quick fixes, he says. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. I don't care how many police officers you put on the street. Doesn't matter how many cameras you put on the pole. Doesn't matter how many lights you put on the block. You have to go at the desire for somebody to want to kill somebody. It really kind of kicked off, I guess, in like April or so. The guy was shot right outside of my, uh, my building. We actually saw it happen. For newcomers to Shaw, like Johnny Peck, the surge in violence 
has been eye-opening. I mean, there's an open-air drug market right around the corner here, you know, that the cops don't do anything about. Peck moved to Shaw with his girlfriend about a year ago. The violence and the lack of a response from the city has been frustrating. A lot of the neighbors, we're all talking a lot more. You know, we're talking on the listservs and talking you know, with each other outside, and we're just getting, uh, you know, we're all really fed up. You know, and it's like, and we're, you know, we're bringing in, you know, money and economic activity to the area. And, you know, I mean, that's got value. And I feel like we want to build a better neighborhood. And if we're going to continue to get shot at, we're going to stop. We're going to go somewhere else. Across town, six miles away, and on the other side of the Anacostia River is Woodland Terrace, where violence is nothing new but it's gotten much worse this summer. In Southeast D.C., homicides have nearly doubled this year. And Woodland Terrace, a public housing complex of roughly 600 residents, has become in some ways the epicenter for this summer's violence. After a string of murders, Police Chief Kathy Lanier flooded the courtyard of Woodland Terrace with dozens of extra officers. So far, so good. I like to see the police stand on the corner when I take my daughter to school and I just feel a lot safer. For residents like Shadashia Gillis, everyday freedoms, like going outside for a walk or running an errand, take on added weight. Especially when you have kids that come outside and play and go to school, and then for your kids, like, Mom, what's that? And you see dead bodies laying in the middle of the street with tape all around it, and your kids ask what it is. It's definitely scary for your kids to grow up in an environment like this. Devon Johnson is president of the Residence Council for Woodland Terrace. He's 25 years old. He grew up in Woodland. He's thought about leaving, going someplace safer, but his family is here, and he says he can't leave until he makes it right for everyone. Just stay involved. Like, just stay involved. Find something to do. You know what I'm saying? I, I chose to stay here and work on issues that we have here, then move on. I plan to go to the military pretty soon. But, you know what I'm saying, before I leave, I want my neighborhood and where my stomach grounds and where I was born and raised at to be a safer place for people to live here. So he pushes the city for programs, job training, youth building exercises, give the young people something to do. Whatever's happening in Woodland right now, it didn't happen overnight. It's just neglect. We, we dealt with, with neglect from the city council for numbers of years. We need things over here like money and and programming and things like that. But we've been suffering like that for a while, not just with gun violence, just with poverty. I'm Patrick Madden. head back to Shaw now, where earlier this week, I hopped off the metro at Mount Vernon Square and made my way to 7th and O. Once there... Are you Ron? Yes, ma'am. I met up with this guy. Rebecca, right? Nice to meet you. His name is Ronald Hampton. And I'm a retired former Metropolitan Police Officer. For more than two decades, Hampton served MPD, first patrolling the street, then doing community relations. After retiring in 1994, the native Washingtonian retired to a life of activism, working with the National Police Accountability Project, the American Civil Liberties Union. I've also served as the executive director of the National Black Police Association for about 23 years. And he teaches criminal justice at the University of the District of Columbia. 
Through it all, Ronald Hampton has had very strong views on the relationship between law enforcement and the communities it serves. A block from where he and I are standing, MPD erected this tent, a community outreach post, they call it, to help residents stay calm and get help if needed. But Hampton's kept his eye on that tent since it went up after the triple shooting, and he says he's not so sure MPD is achieving its stated goal. The officers are working there, but they're not talking to the community. They're not knocking on doors. They're not engaging the people who live in this community. And see, so you can't build a relationship and eliminate the lack of trust and confidence by sitting under the tent. If I was working there, I would even be holding meetings, talking to people, trying to develop some relationship, but also, more importantly, get the community involved in the process of solving the issues that exist in their community. Because our police officers, unfortunately, don't live in our community. Over 85% of them live somewhere other than the District of Columbia. And I'm not against that. They can live where they want to live. But if you don't live here, then you don't know what's going on. So then you have to sort of make up for that distance and then start talking and developing relationships, establish some meetings, ask people what they think or why the issues that are going on in the community are going on. And they ought to be a part of that process in terms of how we're going to get to the, to the root cause of the problem that exists. Not just stop the violence on the surface, but what are the root causes? And the community has the answer to those issues. Well, you grew up in D.C., and, yes, and you live in Petworth now, not too far from here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you were policing the city and living in the city. So what was it like living in and being a part of the community you were patrolling when you were on the force? Well, I loved it myself. I lived in Adams Morgan. I lived in uh, a little bit in Mount Pleasant. Uh, now I live in Petworth, and I lived in Petworth in my last eight, nine years on the police force. And I didn't hide the fact that I was a police officer. People knew that I was a police officer. I was intricately involved in what was going on in, in my community because I think I used that as an advantage. I used the fact that I was a police officer as an advantage to do the kind of things that I needed to do, to educate the public about how the police department worked, how the communication division worked, uh, how to get attention to your problems. And, and then plus, uh, I think there's an advantage to residency, that when you live next door to or in the community with the people that you have to work with and work for, then you're, I think you're less likely to abuse them because you had to go home and live next door to them. When you live in the city and you had to live next door to the people you work for, because the police work for us, they don't work for themselves, you know, it's, there's an accountability factor there. And this rise in crime that we've been seeing lately, Police Chief Kathy Lanier has pointed to a number of possible explanations, a number of possible reasons, including the release of repeat violent offenders and the rise of synthetic drugs. What do you think is behind the spike in violence? uh, A good criminologist or or criminologist that has any credibility would probably not want to tie a rise or decrease in crime to a certain thing they would probably talk about the factors that surround whether or not crime increases or decreases. What do you believe are some factors? Well, unemployment rate of of black males is nearly 50%. We got to have jobs. We got to have jobs for people. We we, we got to have a better way of educating our young men. We got to have recreation. And then too, we need to be working with our young people to help them develop mechanisms to deal with disagreement. You know, rather than saying you get angry and go from one to ten in one second, you got to have some mechanisms that allow them to go from one, two, three, 
and try to defuse those situations rather than go from one to ten. Because the fact of the matter is, is that as grown folks, in my experience, has told me that if I have those kind of skills and resources, then I can reduce the, the potential of me getting in trouble. But young people aren't thinking like that kind of way. And so we, we haven't done those kind of things. And, and that's what I would that's what I would say to you in conclusion, that we need to be involved in this and what's going on in our city in terms of public safety. Public safety is one of those kind of things that has some far-reaching impact into other institutions and areas. And we need change agents in, the, in this society and in, this, and in our city in particular. And these young people are going to be that. That was retired MPD officer Ronald Hampton. I spoke with him in D.C.'s Shaw neighborhood. What do you think? How safe do you feel in the city after the recent spike in violence? Let us know by emailing us at metro at WAMU.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. Time for a break, but when we get back... What might be next for the busiest bus line in Virginia? This is a major commuting corridor with over 20,000 vehicles on an average weekday that need to be accommodated. And making a living as a history geek and DC tour guide. I've always been the did you know, did you know, did you know person. And it's kind of amazing that like instead of just bugging my friends over drinks at a bar, I can get paid to talk about all the trivia that I have in my head about American history. That and more as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Nine months ago, leaders in Arlington County, Virginia, threw out a kind of transportational curveball. They canceled the long-in-the-making streetcar project for Columbia Pike. The streetcar had become a hot political issue. Public sentiment soured at the high cost, more than $300 million, and voters elected an anti-streetcar candidate to the county board. So with that project dead and gone, Arlington residents are wondering... What's next? What's plan B for the pike? As transportation reporter Martin DeCaro tells us, officials hope it'll be something that can both handle expected growth in transit ridership and bring new development. A bus stop along Columbia Pike is the wrong place to try to have a conversation in the morning. Route 16G, destination, Pentagon City Station. Every couple of minutes, a bus pulls up, sometimes two or three at the same time. It is the busiest bus corridor in Virginia. 17,000 riders a day commuting to the Pentagon, Crystal City, downtown D.C., and elsewhere. But no matter the noise, I asked Sarah McKinley of the Columbia Heights Civic Association to explain what she believes has to be built here now that the streetcar is dead. It's called J-Pods. How would you describe it to someone who's never seen it before? It is an overhead rail system that would carry these little pods that would hold from one to four people. So imagine climbing into a little solar-powered pod, pressing a button for your destination, and zipping along the overhead rail at 37 miles an hour. I showed bus rider Susan Dawson a digital rendering of what the pods might look like. 
I don't know much about it. Are they real? I mean, are they, they look like Disneyland, to be honest. Only one town in the country has similar personal people movers, Morgantown, West Virginia. McKinley's group has invited the J-Pods developer to Arlington to give a presentation later this month. Well, the county, when they canceled the streetcar, we were promised that we would have an alternate plan within two weeks. Then, two months later, we're told that we may have some preliminary idea of it in January 2016. It's clear that the county has no plan. The county's working on it. We have to really look hard at what we can do to improve the bus operation. Dennis Leach is the transportation chief in Arlington County's Department of Environmental Services. He's in charge of putting together the new transit plan for Columbia Pike. We're looking at where people want to go, so what are the travel markets, and what we find is Columbia Pike isn't in isolation. Just adding buses may not help much, so Leach's staff is studying whether to use longer buses, allow riders to pay fares before boarding, and installing technology to give buses traffic signal priority. But there will be no dedicated bus lanes on Columbia Pike, which has two lanes each way plus a center turning lane. This is a major commuting corridor with over 20,000 vehicles on an average weekday that need to be accommodated. The group that led the campaign to defeat the streetcar project was Arlingtonians for Sensible Transit, where Peter Russolo says the county should consider his group's proposal. The answer on the pike that our group presented all along and we presented after the streetcar was canceled is a regional bus rapid transit system, or BRT, involving Arlington, Alexandria, and Fairfax County. Russolo says BRT can be done without dedicated bus lanes. The truth is that for the five-mile portion on Columbia Pike, streetcar would have been much more hampered by the lack of a dedicated lane than a BRT system would be, especially a regional one. The county is not considering bus rapid transit, at least not what BRT looks like in other cities with fewer stops and long-distance commutes. Adi Tomer is a transit analyst at the Brookings Institution. What's really big for any transit service is to have the kind of amenities related to the service that make people use it, right? If that means better stops, maybe advanced payment methods, even if that bus moves in regular right-of-way, you can make more people take the bus, which is really the goal here on, on Columbia Pike. Improving the transit system on the pike has never been about only moving people efficiently. It's also tied to real estate development. Streetcar supporters argued a fixed rail system was the best way to spur development that would subsidize affordable housing there. Tomer says that can be accomplished with a bus line, too. Any transit system designed to the best of its ability, connected with other real estate decisions, in particular around from the public sector, their planning, as well as other coordinated investments, can really help make transit work for your long-term development plans. Fixed rail is a catalyst for development. Arlington, however, is a catalyst for investment as well. Arlington County Board Member Jay Fassett was a key streetcar supporter. That's why his move to cancel the project last year took so many by surprise, even as public sentiment turned against the project. Now he says he's committed to coming up with the best possible alternative. I think the real question is, without fixed rail along these corridors, what is the pace of that development and investment, and what is the long-term sustainability of it. The county's goal is zero displacement, meaning no loss of affordable housing along Columbia Pike. Can that be accomplished with buses instead of streetcars? I think it remains unanswered at this point. We'll have to look at that once we have settled in on a transit alternative and watched as it has evol evolves over the first years. The enhanced bus plan will be unveiled next spring. 
Buses may lack the novelty of streetcars, but the county has few options at this point. Those people-moving pods are not under consideration, despite the pleas of Sarah McKinley. The fact that the county is reluctant even to consider an alternative technology is irresponsible, to say the least. Bitter feelings over the death of the streetcar have yet to subside. There is consensus that Columbia Pike needs a plan B, but what that might look like is months from being proposed and years from becoming reality. I'm Martin DeCaro. Want to see those J-Pods for yourself? You can watch a nifty video on our website, metroconnection.org. a lot these days about the freelance economy. More companies are using contractors to whom they don't have to pay benefits, and more workers are choosing the flexibility that comes with being your own boss. 20 years ago, freelancers made up less than 10% of the workforce. Now, one in three workers are freelancers. And by the year 2020, that ratio could shoot up to one in two. In D.C., one industry that's already gone freelance is the history tour business. And last year, the city loosened requirements to become a guide. You no longer must pass a 100-question history test. Becca D. Gregorio brings us this look at how this business model is affecting tour guides and tourists. Uh, I really love starting this Lincoln tour here at Lafayette Square Park. Tour guide Becca Grawl is obsessed with Abraham Lincoln. You have to understand a little bit about what life was like for Lincoln in the White House and what life was like She calls him her historic boyfriend. Yet, Becca is about to tell 25 strangers about the night he died. She says talking about him for two hours straight is easy. He carries this country through, like, our darkest point. And just as we're about to come out of it, his life ends so tragically. Like most tour guides in D.C., Becca is a freelancer. She received her license from the district about four years ago, and now she independently contracts walking tours throughout the city. Because D.C. tourism operates year-round, local freelancers can actually make a full-time living. I think that we're a freelance economy right now, and we're seeing a real boom in freelancing in many sectors, and I think those lines are getting more blurred. The freelance economy, at least for tour guides in D.C., is also shaped by another trend, says guide Cindy Cramblett. I think our society now thrives on reviews, and we trust other groups of people. Many freelancers like Cindy and Becca rely on sites like Yelp and TripAdvisor for referrals, and they make their money through name-your-own-price walking tours where customers pay at the end based on how good the guide was. Cindy has led tours in seven countries and knows a thing or two about learning the ins and outs of new places. She says it requires more than just book smarts. I wish that somebody just handed me a binder and said, here, learn this. Um, but in that binder, it's not going to tell you, like, the weird little things about the town. You have to know where the bathrooms are, what restaurants are worthwhile, and how the past can actually relate to the people in front of you. It's often a mixture of jokes, fun facts, and movie references. Uh, the vice president, Andrew Johnson, look at that picture. Tell me that's not Tommy Lee Jones. Have they ever made a biopic? Back on the Lincoln assassination tour, Becca leads the group toward Ford's theater. Like, look at that face, yeah. You can see it. Especially like Tommy Lee Jones the last couple of years. 
Becca leads the tour through a company called DC by Foot. Manager Candon Arseniega calls it a platform for freelancers. We probably have about nine full-time guides. Uh, every guide knows the National Mall Tour. You could probably take each of our mall tours back to back and, and still learn something new on each of them. Because there are no scripts, these guides write their own after conducting independent research and deciding what facts they feel are worth sharing. So she says the freelance model actually benefits consumers of DC tourism because it offers variety. But with a variety of styles can come some variation in quality. That's why the district requires guides to get licenses, to protect the consumer. Candon says licenses also benefit tour guides. She says her license is proof that freelancing is beyond a hobby. It's a creative career, like being a musician. That's what her husband does. But we get a lot of people between the two of us who will uh, contact us to play a gig or lead a tour in exchange for, like, oh, we'll pay you, we'll give you a six pack of beer, or you can use this for experience. But we don't, we don't need the experience. We need the paycheck. Though the experience is a fulfilling one for the tour guide type. I've always been the did you know, did you know, did you know person. And it's kind of amazing that like instead of just bugging my friends over drinks at a bar, I can get paid to talk about all the trivia that I have in my head about American history. If you liked me, my name is Becca. It's on my name tag. Uh, B-E-C-C-A. Um, if you didn't like me, don't write mean things about me on the internet, man. <laughs> <laughs> Judging from the crowd, they probably won't. I'm Becca DiGregorio. Have a wonderful night. Get home safely. Enjoy the rest of your time. So thank you so much. And now, time to knock on a few doors with our ongoing journey around the region. This week on Door to Door, we'll visit Holland Hills, Virginia, and the Bellevue neighborhood of Southwest DC. My name is Jayla Paul Rivera. I live in Holland Hills. I've lived here for five years. Holland Hills is located south of Old Town, Alexandria, off the GW Parkway in Fairfax County. The first house was built in about 1951, and it was a very unique enclave of modernist homes at the time. The homes were built to be affordable. They were meant to be for people uh, who were coming home from World War II and sort of start their first homes. It was definitely considered radical to live here, to live this far outside of Washington, D.C., to live in these, what people considered kind of crazy houses. So yeah, this area attracted sort of people who thought differently, artists, designers, and a lot of people who'd lived all over the world, uh, people in the Foreign Service or people who came here from other countries. So it's a really eclectic and interesting group of people, and that continues to this day. I think my favorite thing about living in Holland Hills is when I drive into the neighborhood, there's just a calming effect. The beauty of the landscape, all the old trees that are still here, and the homes, I kind of feel like I'm going back in time. It's really like a small town here within Fairfax County in Northern Virginia. And so I think uh, the houses are what, what attract you here, but the people are what keep you here. My name is Vera Abbott. I live in the Bellevue neighborhood, and I have lived here for 35 years. The single family homes were constructed, as I understand, during World War II. They were built for the military of uh, serving Bowling Air Force Base. They were primarily two bedroom uh, townhouses, and then you have a few the apartment complexes. I like Bellevue. It's a beautiful, quiet 
neighborhood. The lawns are maintained, and in the residential area, it is just quiet and friendly and pretty much lovely. We heard from Vera Abbott in Bellevue and Jaylith Hall Rivera in Holland Hills. They spoke with John Hines. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can tell us about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. In a minute. I think that as a writer you have to be pushing yourself towards new things and asking whether something that you've never tried before is, is possible to accomplish. A DC-based writer of historical fiction takes on a new genre with her latest book, plus helping former inmates rebuild their lives through entrepreneurship. My life is not the same and I had to make peace with the fact that it may never be the same, but this is the new place and I can build from this spot. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Coming up. No matter what profession you look at, women have never been welcomed. And we hear these same tired excuses all the time. And the one in the theater is, well, this is just how the season shook out. Nearly four dozen theaters team up to present more than four dozen plays, all penned by women. But first, we'll meet some women for whom drama hasn't been an on-stage thing. It's been real life, at times behind bars. When Teresa Hodge was released after serving nearly five years at Alderson Federal Prison Camp in West Virginia, she was out of work, she'd lost her car, and approaching age 50, she had to go live with her mom. If you walk out the door and you're starry-eyed about your re-entry process, you're in for a rude awakening. The longtime Washingtonian was in prison on charges including money laundering and mail fraud. Four years after re-entering society, she's living in Prince George's County, Maryland, and finally starting to feel like she's back on track. This is my new normal. My life is not the same, and I had to make peace with the fact that it may never be the same. But this is the new place, and I can build from this spot. And that's what Teresa wants to enable other returning citizens to do through Mission Launch, a program that helps former prisoners seeking to launch their own business. As Teresa says, it could be anything from a house cleaning company. What we're going to do is show them how to clean enough houses to become self-sufficient and hopefully hire other people to do the same thing. To coding. It might be someone who has great coding skills and they want to code the next app. To construction. We just are going to be looking at the person who has the ability to really be focused and take advantage of the opportunity. Teresa Hodge developed the idea for Mission Launch with Lauren Hodge. So same last name. I'm assuming some (laughs) relation here. That is my mother, Teresa. (laughs) So we have the mother-daughter business partner dynamic duo. (laughs) While she was visiting her mother in West Virginia, Lauren was enrolled at the Johns Hopkins Carey Business School. With each trip to the prison, she wondered more and more how all these women wound up there. 
And then we did the research and saw that the number of women going to prison had gone up by 813% over the last three decades. And so it just seemed like we were loving the punishment system a little bit more than we wanted the restorative system. So that's kind of where we got to the place of, you know, what could we do? What they could do, they decided, was encourage returning citizens to apply for a 16-week entrepreneurship boot camp, which Lauren calls literally hardcore. It's one day a week, three hours of class time, three hours of homework time. And at the end of it, what you've produced is a small business administration ready business plan so that you can go out and pitch. Lauren and Teresa expect the first entrepreneurship boot camp to start this winter. Mission Launch will also pair participants with mentors from the local business community for one-on-one counseling on things like crafting a business model and securing funding. With 700,000 people released from state and federal prisons each year, 8,000 in D.C. alone, Lauren Hodge anticipates sifting through a lot of applications. It's going to be probably a heartbreaking process because there are going to be so many people who will be good. And for us, we don't want to further damage someone's ego because this is a very sensitive time. So sensitive, actually, that, according to the Pew Charitable Trusts, more than 40% of returning citizens go back to prison within three years, either for committing a new offense or for violating probation or parole. In Washington, it's more like 50%, according to the Council for Court Excellence. Bryn Phillips is Mission Launch's Director of Communications and Special Projects. She met Teresa Hodge, Lauren's mom, while doing time at Alderson for bank, mail, and wire fraud. Prior to that, Bryn was an accountant in Baltimore. I was doing international finance and treasury. And after nearly four years in prison, she remembers how disorienting it was when she came home. (laughs) You first are coming out and you're trying to navigate all of these pathways of, you know, do I need housing? Do I need employment? Some people come home and they're like, "I, I need a new driver's license. I need to find my birth certificate. Everything has been displaced. What hadn't been displaced for her, though, were her skills. I did a lot of business communications and a lot of special projects. So I can bring that same skill set to this business, tweak it in however I need to fit in. So when you come home and you're transitioning and you have a difficult time getting hired and getting a job, your skill set didn't go anywhere. In the District of Columbia, the unemployment rate for ex-offenders is nearly 50%. But Bryn Phillips points out that while many reentry programs teach new skill sets to help returning citizens get hired. If you want to own your own company and you come with some of those skill sets that you already have, entrepreneurship needs to step in to fill that gap. And that, says Lauren Hodge, is where Mission Launch comes in. Part of the recidivism for us, we kind of feel like it's not creating enough pathways for people, which is why entrepreneurship is something that we're really excited to push and promote. Not that entrepreneurship is for everyone, adds Teresa Hodge. That's why they're going to select their applicants carefully. We work with a lot of service providers, so many of our service providers are going to feed us individuals who they believe are ready because we're not going to do case management. This is really for the person who's come home, they've done their work, and they want to take advantage of this unique opportunity. And in doing so, he or she is less likely to be among those caught in that three-year revolving door. Having been to prison myself, what I know for a fact is it's no way of life. And so I can't imagine that anyone is sitting in prison thinking, oh, in three years, I can't wait to come back here. And if they're not thinking that, then I think the real issue is we have just made the reentry process so difficult that a person can't get back on their feet to where going back to prison is the only option. 
So with Mission Launch, she and her team hope to widen such options. They recently received $50,000 from the U.S. Small Business Administration, which helped draw matching funds from four other foundations and companies. And if all goes well, Mission Launch will continue bringing in enough grants and investors to blast off in other cities. First stops, Baltimore and Philadelphia. Next week, Mission Launch is taking part in Social Innovation Festival 2015, a five-day celebration of using business, technology, and the arts to promote social justice. Teresa Hodge will be a panelist in a discussion called Tech, Hip-Hop, and the New Jim Crow. You can find more information about the event and about Mission Launch on our website, metroconnection.org. Over the next few months, approximately 50 theater companies in the D.C. area are shining a light on new plays penned by women. Organizers say it's the largest collaboration ever devoted to producing original theater by female writers. Lauren Landau talked with two of the playwrights featured in the Women's Voices Theater Festival about their work and the climate for women in today's theater world. On a side street off Georgia Avenue in Silver Spring sits a small office building. When I walk in, I don't see a box office or a stage, and I'm not entirely sure I've come to the right place. But upstairs, I find them, a small group of teenagers clustered on the floor of the Highwood Theater. Director Eva Silverman brainstorms some blocking ideas. Yeah, I think that's a good extension of the idea of, like, her being the only one who's not moving set pieces around. Like... They're working on The Requiem, a drama by 15-year-old Germantown resident Madison Middleton. She's sitting nearby with 16-year-old actor Max Rome. They're discussing his character, who has Alzheimer's. So at what point of memory loss do you lose who you are? So it may be useful, I don't know how you want to approach this, but it may be useful to build up who Leland was in the past and then through research, deconstruct that person. Middleton is the Women's Voices Theater Festival's youngest playwright. The Requiem is her first produced play. She sounds confident now, but says she wasn't always so outgoing. I was a very shy child. I was the stereotype of the tiny, terrified child behind my mom's pants, like hiding from strangers. She found the stage and her voice at age five. We put on a production of Wizard of Oz, and I was cast as Toto, and I completely blossomed. (laughs) I think I can beat you on this. 64-year-old playwright Margaret Engel is also part of the Women's Voices lineup. Like Middleton, she and her twin sister Allison have been involved with theater since childhood. My first role, of course, how could we have been cast as anything else? We were doing Alice in Wonderland, and what casting director could pass up the fact that my twin and I would be Tweedledum mm-hmm. and Tweedledee? We both thought we were going to be Alice. Angle and her sister co-wrote their first play, Red Hot Patriot, in 2010. Their second show, Irma Bombeck at Wit's End, premieres at Arena Stage next month. Angle says the play presents the flip side of the hit TV show Mad Men. The women and children land that was left behind when the husbands left for the office in the 60s and 70s and 80s. I asked her if a festival featuring only women writers is really necessary. Very important, very necessary. I was just at the Dramatists Guild conference out in La Jolla, and they released the 
results of a three-year study with the dismal statistics that everyone knew, but it's fewer than 22% of the plays in America are written by women, and the figures are equally terrible for the number of women who are in the director's spot, and actually now in the performance spot. Um, and this is also true in, uh, in Hollywood as well as Broadway and across the country. So this is a very brave, important step that Washington is taking to start changing this gender um, inequality and work towards parity. How is the climate in D.C.? I mean, is it, is it worse in other places, worse here? Actually, the, the Dramatists Guild broke it out. Washington is slightly better, which is wonderful, but it's still all the way around dismal. And this is the picture across the country. Because we have so many theaters and because we have so many women in theater here, the um, percentages are a few points higher, but not dramatically. It's extraordinary to see so many people come together to celebrate women. This doesn't happen very often, unfortunately. So in my mind, it's beyond important. And it's, it's the beginning of something really powerful and great. We have season after season where you'll have all the playwrights are male, all the directors are male, and it's really shocking that in this day and age we've come so far with so many other issues of, of parody, but we are very behind in, in the entertainment world. Has it gotten better or are things kind of the same as they've been for years or decades? Well, I'm getting cranky about this because no matter what profession you look at, women have never been welcomed. And we hear these same tired excuses all the time. And the one in the theater is, well, this is just how the season shook out. These are the ones that happened to come up this season. That is an excuse. And I think all of us are tired of those excuses. What do you think needs to change? And do you think it will? I think people are starting to understand the economic dollar value of women um, in the theater. We are the largest group of patrons, and really what we say should go, so we should be pushing forward, and I see some hopeful signs. Also, we've had, as women, extraordinary experiences in our lives. We f feel things that are very unique to uh, our gender, and I think we just have so much to say, and we have a very uh, special way of saying it. The more work that we do that is f for women and by women, the more it will change. There's a classic case where once women were auditioning for orchestras behind screens, everyone did, then the percentage of women who actually made the cut and got into the orchestras zoomed up. I'd like to see blind submissions totally for theatrical productions, and I'd also like to see a greater emphasis on current working writers. You know, Shakespeare takes up so much space, and you don't have to pay royalties to Shakespeare. We need to really hold the feet to the fire of the artistic directors and say, you know, the status quo is not working and we can't continue like this. That was Margaret Engel and Madison Middleton, two playwrights featured in the Women's Voices Theater Festival, talking with Lauren Landau. You can get a sneak peek of the Requiem this weekend at the Kennedy Center. It officially opens in Silver Spring on September 18th. And you can find more information about the Women's Voices Theater Festival on our website, metroconnection.org.
time for our monthly look at the region's literary life. Bookend. In this edition of Bookend, Jonathan Wilson sits down with Emily Mitchell. Mitchell teaches creative writing at the University of Maryland, and she has a new book of short stories out. It's called Viral. Many of the spare, often startling stories take readers through settings that start familiar, but suddenly turn strange. It's a bit of a shift for Mitchell, whose first novel, The Last Summer of the World, turns the clock back to 1920s France and the life of art photography pioneer Edward Steichen. Mitchell met Jonathan at one of her favorite places, the Hirshhorn Museum Sculpture Garden, where they talked about how her writing career got started and how a native Londoner like herself became so attached to Washington, D.C. I have lived in D.C. this time for coming up for three years, but I also lived here when I was a teenager. Um, When my family immigrated from the U.K., we moved to the D.C. area, to Fairfax County. So I lived here for about five years before. And coming back, it's been amazing to see how much the city has changed since then. So, yeah, I I should mention, we are here in the Hirshhorn Museum uh, Sculpture Garden, which is part of the Smithsonian. You chose this spot. I'm wondering, what is it about this place that is special to you? Well, so, I mean, in addition to being a place that, you know, that I used to come when I was very young, my first novel, The Last Summer of the World, is about the art photographer Edward Steichen and mostly about his service in World War I, but also one of the aspects of the novel features his friendship, his real-life friendship with the sculptor um, Rodin. And in the Hirshhorn Sculpture Garden, um, you know, as many of your listeners may know, there are a number of really amazing Rodins, um, most particularly the Burgers of Calais, that beautiful sculpture. Which we're staring at right now. Which is right here by us. And, you know, in which I first saw here, you know, and, and, you know, and features very prominently in the novel. So I think, you know, in some sense, when I was writing that book, I must have been thinking about this place as well being inspired even from all those years ago. So let's go back even farther. I'm wondering, I I asked this to many of the authors that I interview, but how did this all get started? And and by all of this, I mean your idea to be a writer. Did you know from a very early age that you wanted to be a writer or did you stumble into this? I can never remember a time when I didn't write and want to write. It's not always so clear how you're going to make a living um, if you decide that you want to be a writer. At a certain point, I decided that I was going to go to law school. I got really close, and then it is, you know, then I, I think at some point I realized that what I really was longing to do was to write stories, and that when I had time, that was what I did with my spare time. And so I thought, well, I'll just try this. I'll write a book, and I'll see what happens. And, you know, I was very fortunate that, you know, that, that my first novel was accepted and published, and I also discovered that I love teaching, which is something that you can do along with writing. And it was both something I wanted to do forever, and then also something, you know, that I had to sort of go through the side door to get into. Your first novel is, um, in many ways, a you know historical novel, and your short stories are very different than that, or at least some of them are very, very different. Was that a risk for you, or have you always kind of jumped around to different styles of writing, different um, ideas of what your writing can do? I do love to to experiment. I think that as a writer, you have to be pushing yourself towards new things and asking whether something that you've never tried before is is possible to accomplish. Otherwise, you would lose interest very quickly in your work. But in particular, you know, so, you know, some of the stories, many of the stories in this new collection are speculative fiction, you know, sort of bordering on science fiction. 
you know, which is a genre that I've always loved to read ever since I was a kid and, uh, you know, and sort of aspired to write, you know, since very, very early. But I think that historical fiction and science fiction are mirror images of each other. You know, they both require thinking about the relationship of a different time to the present. You know, one is the past and one is the future in order to be artistically successful because in historical fiction, when you read it, you're really asking questions about how this relates to the world that became after it. And in science fiction, you're asking questions about how you got to the imaginary world from the world of the present. You know, and so there's there's something similar happening with the reader and certainly with the writer in both cases. So you spent quite a bit of time in D.C., but you were born in London. So London has a reputation and a history of literature that D.C. does not have. D.C., you know, we're getting a little bit of a history, but it's not the same. What has kept you here? What has pulled you back here? Well, primarily it was it was my job. You know, that was the practical thing that made the decision. But also my family is still in this area, my parents. And I think, you know, for writers, you know, grand historical places, and London is, of course, an amazing, amazing city, can be very inspiring. But, but I think the main thing that's important is a place that is meaningful to you and a place where you spent your teenage years is, for better or for worse, and in my case for better, going to be a place that you have some fairly deep emotional and psychological connections to. So I find DC a kind of, you know, extremely interesting place. And although it doesn't have the kind of literary history, you know, that some other places do, I also think that can be good for a writer. You know, that what you have the opportunity to do in places that haven't been written about so well or so much is to to do that, right, to express those experiences. I mean, I've become, since I moved back here, very, very interested in um, writers who do write about Washington, you know, in a literary mode, um, you know, and I'm kind of always looking for new writers, you know, who account for what life is like in this city because it does have a very specific feeling and flavor to it. That was writer Emily Mitchell talking with Jonathan Wilson. Her collection of short stories, Viral, is out now. Looking for some new reading this fall? You can hear Emily Mitchell talking about who her favorite authors are right now on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We'd like to welcome our new intern, Karen Turner. Karen, welcome to the team. We are thrilled to have you aboard. If you missed part of today's program or you want to listen to past editions, subscribe to our podcast. You can find a link at metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. We list all of our music at metroconnection.org, where you can also find links to our Twitter and Facebook pages so you can stay in touch with us all week long. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.